Most people can tell you what happened on April 19, 1993 in Waco, Texas, when law enforcement laid siege to the Branch Davidian compound. Eventually, the FBI launched an assault and initiated a tear gas attack in an attempt to force the Branch Davidians out of the ranch. Shortly thereafter, the Mount Carmel Center quickly became engulfed in flames. The fire resulted in the deaths of 76 Branch Davidians, including 25 children, two pregnant women, and the current leader, David Koresh. But how were the Branch Davidians formed? That's the topic for today's episode. I'm Alicia Galati. And I'm Jada Smith. And this is Two Sisters and a Cult. I'm really excited about this because, I mean, I've been talking about Waco nonstop since we started the podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like. And we're finally diving into it. But there's there's so much to it. Yeah, there's a lot to it. So I'm going to break this up into three different parts. First part will be all about before David Koresh and, or, you know, Vernon Howell, which was his real name, because got to change your name if you're a cult leader. Vernon Howell. Good for him. Yeah. (laughs) He legally changed it too. He wasn't just like, you will now call me. Like he like went through the proper channels to change his name. What was his inspiration? Do you talk about that? Or Yeah, that'll be episode yeah? two. Okay. But yeah, oh, okay. it has to do with Bible stuff, of course. Of course. Today we're going to talk about the history of the Branch Davidians, where they started from, who was their founder. Because they're, I feel like everything you watch, it's like David Koresh is their leader. But you don't realize everything that happened leading up to Koresh. And like, by the time Koresh got there, their leader had already died. So, yeah, there's a lot of history before that. So that's what today's episode is going to be all about the history. I hate history. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's hilarious. I love it. (laughs) I know. That's how it's always been, though. Like, you've always loved history. I always loved math. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Weirdo. (laughs) I know. You're a weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) Haha, take that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's going to be interesting. So the Davidians find their origin within the Seventh-day Adventist church. Like, what? Yeah, that's surprising. No way. Super surprising. Uh, it's the late 1920s, early 1930s. So let's talk Seventh-day Adventists because obviously not everyone knows who they are, what they are. You might know of them, but we're going to talk a bit about what their beliefs are and uh, some of their foundings, what they're about, about, exactly. So the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a Protestant Christian denomination. Any Protestant church and any evangelical church will tell you that it's a cult, that the Seventh-day Adventists are cults. Um, I remember reading about them in my cult class that I had at Bible college. Mm -hmm. Yes, I went to Bible college. (laughs) <laughs> no, it was not accredited. <laughs> yes, it was a waste of time. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I did oh. not want to go. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to all the other episodes and you will hear about that story. 
Anyway, so they're distinguished by their observance of Saturday, the seventh day of the week in Christian and Jewish calendars, as the Sabbath. Most Christian churches uh, observe Sunday as the seventh day or day of rest. Uh, it's not the seventh day. It's literally the first day. But <laughs> <laughs> most people, most Christian churches uh, recognize Sunday as the day of rest and the day of church. Whereas Seventh-day Adventists, uh, Saturday is their Sabbath. That is their, and Jewish people also, that's their Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And that is when Seventh-day Adventists usually go to church is on that Saturday. Uh, and Saturday, Seventh-day Adventists, you'll find, uh, especially modern ones, they'll request that they'll say that due to religious reasons, they can't work any Saturdays, which I'm like, wish I could use that. But Um, so they grew, the denomination grew out of the Millerite movement in the United States during the mid 19th century. uh, And it was formally established in 1863 among its founders are Ellen G white, whose extensive writings are still held very highly in the church right now. And that is why, the evangelical church considers them a cult because they hold so much weight to this woman's writings and teachings, like almost in par with the Bible. Why? The Bible is a bunch of people's writings. So jokes <laughs> on you guys. <laughs> yeah. It hasn't been canonized. Oh my God. Oh God. <laughs> and it's a woman. Come on. <laughs> so, obviously every time it has to do with satan they took out a whole book of the bible because it was about a woman not surprised i don't remember that but yeah not surprised the seventh day Adventist church still holds her writings to be in par with the bible most of the theology of the seventh day Adventist church corresponds to common evangelical christian teachings they have the trinity they say that scripture is infallible uh they do have a distinctive teaching though that says that the unconscious state of the dead, which I don't know much about that. <laughs> and I didn't look what too much. Mean? I didn't look too much into that. Mm-hmm. I feel like I should have, but I feel like we should also just do another episode on Seventh Day Adventist. Yeah, let's do that. I like since it. yeah, since this is a cult's and also kind of religion, because we mm-hmm. consider all religions to be cults, especially in the way they started. Mm-hmm. We'll do an episode on Seventh-day Adventists, and we'll dive into that. Not for today. Got a lot of other stuff to cover for today. <laughs> the church is also known for its emphasis on diet and health. They adhere to a kosher food laws, uh, advocating vegetarianism, and its holistic understanding of the person. So it's uh, likewise known for its promotion of religious liberty and its conservative principles and lifestyle. So I knew, I've only known one Seventh-day Adventist in my life. What about you? I don't think I've ever known anybody who claimed it or like, you know, uh, I don't know, evangelical or open about it. Yeah. Yeah, I only knew one guy. I met him on a dating app. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Never hooked up with him or met him, really. It was just, we chatted and we started chatting more and just got to know him. Getting back into it. (laughs) Yeah, so I've only known one person who 
was like claimed to be Seventh-day Adventist. And I talked to him a bit about what their beliefs were, but mm-hmm. it was years ago. Mm. Years, like 10 years ago. <laughs> and so I don't really remember a lot. I just remember taking that cults class. And then it was very soon after talking to him about his beliefs. And then I came to my own conclusion that I did not think that evangelicals should call Seventh-day Adventists cults because mm-hmm. the beliefs are so similar. They, the only real thing is that like, that I would see as like, mm, I'm not sure if I would put them side by side, is that they hold a lot of weight to their founders' words. That's it. Yeah. So a lot of it is very, very similar. Yeah, but so, it's like Lutherans branching off. They love Martin Luther. That's why they yeah. named themselves after him, you know? Yeah. Exactly. The Quakers, they do weird stuff. Yep. There's there's so <laughs> many different groups, which, oh man, we should just talk about all of them. I'm so excited. Oh, my God. Cover all the Christian groups. Yes. We'll do like a 10-part part <laughs> series. <laughs> Christian sects, part 15. No, I really think we should. Let us know, yeah. listeners. Hey, yeah. you people out there. Hey, you Listen. Guys. Hey, you guys. So tell us, let us know if you would like us to do some of the uh, Christian sects. Yeah, let us know what you guys think about that. Definitely yeah, which one? Yeah, and which one would you want us to do first? Yeah. So there's a fly hanging out <laughs> in my closet, and he's trying to go near my nose. <laughs> this oh, dude no. needs to chill. Oh, no, no, no. Anyway, okay. So the World Church of the Seventh-day Adventists is governed by the General (laughs) Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, uh, with smaller regions administered by divisions, union conferences, and local conferences. It currently has a worldwide worldwide baptized membership of over 20 million people and 25 million adherents. As of May 2007, it was the 12th largest religious body in the world and the 6th largest highly international religious body, which I'm like, this is nuts. I don't know why I haven't met more of them. (laughs) Right? I think they're a lot more chill from what I understand. Yeah, it sounds like it. (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're not as like in your face as the evangelical side they're more like come on over if you want we also have vegetarian meals (laughs) oh my god they sound amazing right (laughs) guys we found our new religion (laughs) just kidding um don't join that cult yeah no It is ethically and culturally diverse and maintains a missionary presence in over 215 countries and territories. The church operates over 7,500 schools, including over 100 post-secondary institutions, numerous hospitals, publishing houses, and a humanitarian aid organization known as the Adventist Development and Relief Agency, or the ADRA. So this is just some general information about them, obviously. Seventh-day Adventist Church is the largest of several Adventist groups, which arose from the Millerite movement of the 1840s. 
in upstate New York. A phase of the second Great Awakening, which we talked about a few episodes ago with the Oneida community. So go back to that one on the history of the second Great Awakening. Uh, William Miller predicted on the basis of Daniel 8, 14 through 16, and the day-year principle that Jesus Christ would return to earth between the spring of 1843 and the spring of 1844. Obviously, that did not happen. In the summer of 1844, Millerites came to believe that Jesus would return on October 22nd, 1844, understood by the biblical day of atonement for that year. Miller's failed prediction became known as the Great Disappointment. (laughs) Can you imagine? I know this poor guy, your prediction being called the Great Disappointment. <laughs> I'm gonna carry that with you forever. Forever. Oh. <laughs> Poor Miller. Yeah. Hiram Edson and other Millerites. So we're leading to the Seventh Day Adventist guys. Okay, this is this is what we're leading to. I promise we'll get there. So Hiram Edson and other Millerites came to believe that Miller's cal- calculations were correct, but that his interpretation of Daniel 8.14 was flawed as he assumed Christ would come to cleanse the world. These Adventists came to the conviction that Daniel 8.14 foretold Christ's entrance in the most holy place of the se- heavenly sanctuary rather than to his, of his second coming. Over the next few decades, this understanding of the sanctuary in heaven developed into the doctrine of the investigative judgment in which every person would be judged to verify their eligibility for salvation. So the investigative judgment is different than what Humphrey Noyes of the Oneida community, which we talked about a few weeks ago, Uh believed in his perfectionism. So perfectionism is that you, once you're saved, you're always always saved. It does not matter what you have done or what you will do. You will always be saved once you accept Jesus. Well, what the Millerites are saying in their investigative judgment is that when you stand before God after you die, this is according to them, and I don't know how many fucking times I've heard this before, when you stand before God, that is when you'll be judged on your deeds and your good, the bad, your salvation, did you accept Jesus, hashtag all the things. This group of Adventists continued to believe that Christ's second coming would continue to be imminent. However, they resisted setting a future date. Obviously, they didn't want another great disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so now on to the Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. These are different than the Branch Davidians. Because there are so many. (laughs) Like I said, the history of this is pretty nuts. Uh, So we've got the Seventh-day Adventists into the Davidian Seventh-day Adventists into the Branch Davidians. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to talk about the Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. So their founder, and this is according to the Branch Davidian website. So take this as you will. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) So the founder of the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist was a Bulgarian immigrant by the name of Victor Tasho Houtif. He was a teacher of of a Bible class at the Seventh-day Adventist church in L.A. 
1929, he was teaching a class on the book of Isaiah and presenting concepts new to the generally accepted doctrines of the church. Big no-no. Which he believed that God had directly revealed to him. Okay. Yeah. Um, What kind of direct are we talking? Like channeling a beam of light uh, in his room while he was you know, in a dream or what? It could just be I had a higher relevation. Yeah, yeah, that seems <laughs> more <thinking>. likely. <laughs> um, because as a result, a lot of the church members started going to his classes. So I'm thinking that if it was some, like, over-the-top magical thing, mm-hmm. they might have been, like, not as interested. You know, the yeah. crazy, wacko Victor over there. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah. So a lot of people started going to his classes and obviously that catches the attention of the church leaders and ultimately led in his dismissal, which isn't just, you're not allowed to come to this church. It is you are disfellowshipped. That sounds like a cult and excommunicated from the church. A large number of his students were also removed from the church membership as well, which Man, that fucking sucks. Yeah. Poor guy. Anyway. The burden of his teachings at this time concerned uh, his trying to call for a return to the standards originally taught by the founder, Ellen White, who was supposed to be accepted as a prophet of God with the gift of inspiration. He, his messages taught that a revival of that same spirit would bring about a reformation within the church and would bring about God's favor that they had formerly enjoyed in their beginnings. His teachings also emphasized the need for church members to seek to receive the seal of God as opposed to the mark of the beast. Yeah. And thus assure themselves a place amongst the special group brought to light in the book of revelations known as the 144,000. Yep. Yep. If you've ever read the book of revelations, You know exactly what we're talking about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Eventually, Victor Houteff and his uh, followers left L.A. and moved east to Waco, Texas. Now, when anyone thinks Waco, Texas, Jada, what's the first thing you think of when you think Waco? Now, in 2020. Or even the last, like, ten years, five years. Netflix? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) uh chip and joanna Gaines. oh yeah i know them i didn't know that they were associated that's where their silo is that's where their like company is they always talk about um a lot of their stuff is either in waco or right outside of waco and they always show like no way yeah yeah (laughs) so that's what I think of when I think of Waco, Texas, mm-hmm. until I think of the devastating massacre yeah. <laughs> of Waco, Texas. Yeah. Um, so they established a community in the outskirts of the city near present day Lake Waco, and they called it the Mount Carmel Center. Obviously, if you know, mm-hmm. read the Bible, you know, mm-hmm. Mount Carmel has a significant special place in Christianity. That is where Elijah, what did he receive from God? Is um, it the place where, like, he did the, the sacrificial dance-off? 
with the priests of Baal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. You called it that, but yes. <laughs> yeah, that's where he um he did like a big sacrifice and he poured water all over the sacrifices and then fire came down from the sky to light the sacrifices. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sacrificial dance off. So that was Mount Carmel um, in the Bible. Around 1938, Victor incorporated into his teachings the belief that God was going to establish his kingdom on earth, which its headquarters were in Jerusalem. Over the years, through a major literature ministry, backed up by Bible workers giving one-on-one students to Adventists, the rank of the Davidians grew. So the problem is that when you're placing so much trust and stuff on a leader, when that leader dies, nobody knows what the fuck to do. That's exactly what happened here. So on February 5th, 1955, Victor Houtef died. It devastated the Davidians. Obviously, uh, they did not expect that he would die. I don't know why you wouldn't expect that someone would die. I know. But it was mostly because they expected that all of them would be able to participate in the kingdom on earth and the second coming in their lifetime. And since that wasn't really happening, they were like, ouch, this is Mm -hmm. hard. So who do you think stepped in to take the place of Victor Houtef? His wife. She assumed command and nobody challenged her on it. They were like, yeah, sure. That sounds cool. Let's do this. Mm -hmm. So that's what they did. Victor had established a governing board known as the Executive Council and had drawn up a set of bylaws. This stipulated that the leadership would consist of a president, which could be selected or chosen by God himself. I don't don't know what. (laughs) How would you know what? I don't know. <laughs> you just know, Jada. You just I'm yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Dude, just trust me. Yeah. <laughs> and this person would have the authority to select the other individuals who would make up the executive council. She declared that Victor had named her the new vice president and the acting VP. So there was someone who was already vice president. When Victor died, his name was Elder Wilson. And when Florence came in and was like, no, no, Victor made me vice president, which means now I'm president. Also, Elder Wilson, you should leave. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Pretty much she was like, this isn't going to work because obviously people are going to think that you are supposed to be here. But I'm going to do it. (laughs) Wow. And everybody went along with it. In all fairness, and according to the bylaws, this was the only way that the organization and the church could function legitimately while the Lord found a new prophet president to take over the position. So they were thinking this will just be temporary until someone is appointed by God. We don't know how, but it's going to happen. She was not playing around. She was not playing around at all. <laughs> um, so there were quite a few members, though, that were like, yeah, but 
it's great that you're doing this, but we really need someone divinely appointed to step in. We're not, we don't really like this. And they had an idea of who that, that person would be. There was a man by the name of Benjamin Roden. We will talk about him in a second. Um, he began writing letters to Florence and the council calling for reform, saying, we need to go back to the old ways. We need to change all these things. And they were like, mm, yeah, no, we're not interested. <laughs> Anyone who would listen to Benjamin, though, he, he was like, I will tell you everything I know. Um, they weren't too happy about that, the Davidians. And so they said, yeah, so I think we're going to remove you from church membership. He began traveling around to the various Davidian groups around the U.S., drawing a lot of followers to his teaching. So he was like, okay, so you're going to kick me out. (laughs) Funny thing, I know where all the people are, and I'm just going to go poach them myself. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So eventually they started being known as the Branch Davidians. The branch part comes from the name derived not from the fact that they were an extension or an offshoot, but rather the name branch mentioned in the scriptures referenced to Christ himself. I don't remember a scripture in which Christ was referenced as the branch. Maybe a fig tree reference or like a... I am a, a branch of my father. I, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All I keep thinking about is um, no. um, that song. You are the vine. We are the branches. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> exactly. He should be. They should be the vine Davidians. The vine Davidians. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, welcome to my concert, guys. <laughs> That's what, where their name comes from. To counteract the exodus of so many Davidians to the teachings of Benjamin Rodin, Florence obviously had to come up with something. So she interpreted the prophetic scriptures while still not claiming to have the gift of prophecy or to be a prophet. She took a scripture from the Bible of from the book of Revelations concerning um, a period of time called the 42 months and set a date on when God would be making his mark or seal uh, on the seventh day Adventist church. And, but he would do that by slaying everyone who had not gotten the mark of God. And the date she picked was April 22nd, 1959. Obviously, that didn't happen. She also predicted that Victor would be resurrected on that day. She's just digging herself a hole, right? Like, she could have easily... I mean, if we've learned anything about cult, uh, from cult, other cult leaders, you don't set a date. Ever. Yeah. Not going to end well. No. And... If you really want to set a date, then just say in like 150 years, you know, (laughs) everybody, you know, is going to be dead. Exactly. You say, yeah, Victor's going to be resurrected and God is going to smite everyone who does not have the seal. Sure. I have a question about that. Why 
do they love a violent God so much when they claim that it's the merciful, graceful side of him that, you know, they love and that saved them? Are you referring to the Christianity in general? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. None of it ever makes any sense to me. It doesn't. It really doesn't. Like, it's a channel for hatred. I don't have to smite you down. God's going to do that. (laughs) Well, I mean, okay. So I think it's because there is this mix in the Bible of God. There's this mixed view of God. So if you look at the Old Testament, and this is just me going Bible buff on you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know. In the Old Testament, God would massacre tons of people. He would send the Israelites to massacre tons of people take their women kill their sons like Mm -hmm. destroy their homes kill the cows why what did the cows do can we you made the cows the cows (laughs) yeah but then you look at the new testament and it's a different god completely different god than old testament god Mm-hmm. And I think that Christians and offshoots of Christianity have such a hard time reconciling that in their minds that mm. God is both to them in that he is a vindictive and jealous God, but mm-hmm. he also is amazing and did all this great stuff like sending his son to be sacrificed for us. <laughs> guys i obviously don't care for christianity in case you didn't know i think it's a bunch of abusive relationship tbh it is for sure and i think about that every single time that i hear someone say it's for a purpose it's for a reason this thing happened so that god could shine through you're telling me That your child died so that God could take the stage? I don't want any part of that God. None. No, thank you. I'm good. Also, I don't <laughs> see the God or the stage, so it might be a little bit wrong. <laughs> Where is this stage? Where is this God? <laughs> yeah. So, and I, th- I, th- I really think that's why. Because they see the Old Testament, they see the New Testament, and they're like, how do we reconcile this? Because they're two completely different characters. Yeah, which also makes you wonder, is it two different gods? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In reality, I mean, if God were to uh, exist, not that anybody knows for sure. Right. Fuck. I don't know. You're going to have to think about that because that it makes a lot of sense, especially. Or is it more than just two? OK, because mm-hmm. like. Humanity was pantheistic before Abraham was like, Uh hey, guys, (laughs) I had this vision. This angel came and saw me and told me that I need to leave my hometown. I need to travel the wilderness and that I am the chosen people. Do I hear cult? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yes, I hear cult. I think he was hitting the acacia root a little too hard. You know? And then the fact that he almost killed his son, but then an angel came down and was like, you passed the test. What? (laughs) There's a lot going on here. Anyway, 
So too much. <laughs> yeah. So humanity has always been, even before Christianity, very pantheistic, multi-gods, very different gods, and they all have very different characters. Like, even if you look at like Roman gods, there's the god of war, the god of love, the god of peace, the god of sex, the god, like there's so many different gods and they all have different like attributes and things that quirks and very mm-hmm. human quirks. But it kind of makes me wonder now, is it more than just two? The mm-hmm. Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Was it actually like, which I... You know how you did that episode on Mithraism? Yeah. I've been thinking more and more about that lately. Uh, especially because I've been watching a lot of Nat Geo Old World kind of documentaries. Mm-hmm. And thinking a lot about... Well, Miss, what? I hate history. Okay. I know. I can watch it. I just <laughs> don't want to study it. <laughs> so that's the thing. It's <laughs> <laughs> the only problem. <laughs> I will watch the fuck out of some ancient aliens. No, just kidding. Yes, I do, <laughs> I do like ancient aliens. Um, but like a lot of these civilizations that were formed before, like 10,000 years before the rise of Christianity, mm-hmm. which according to Christianity, there was nothing 10,000 years before. Right. Because it's only 6,000 years old. <laughs> it's not. But like they were, they were worshiping these gods and they were worshiping these deities in the sky and the moon and the sun and the stars and all these different things. And they were um, like all of these big uh, formations, like stone formations that were created by humans or aliens. Thousands (laughs) and thousands of, yeah, sorry, had to throw that in there. Thousands and thousands of years ago to worship these other things and how much like going back to the Mithraism, how much of Christianity is pulled from that story and that religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You actually made me think of like Egyptian mythology earlier when you were talking about judgment day, I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's mm-hmm. Egyptian. That was, mm-hmm. they would bury people and cut out their hearts so that the dude would be able to weigh it. And, that was judgment day. Yeah. That's where that started. Yeah. So it kind of makes me think like, especially with the rewriting of the Bible, I think it was 1200 AD or CE. <laughs> Common era. Common yes. era. I know. Um, I'm pretty sure it was around then that they rewrote the Bible in English um, and then distributed it like distributed it like crazy to the local, uh, to like common people. And that's when common people were first able to actually get the Bible to read for themselves. I discovered something about that today. Go ahead. Ooh, today. I love new information. (laughs) King James, Mm -hmm. that fellow there who translated that Bible, Mm -hmm. had uh, several male lovers and he translated the Bible to get the church off his ass. Nice. <laughs> right? <laughs> Not surprised. He um, also had a theory that Jesus was gay because he had 12 male followers. <laughs> oh my god. 
my upbringing in the Christian church is like blasphemy. But I'm also I know, like, but the dude translated hmm. <laughs> was before our time. It's it's history. Yeah. And I mean, that was like the thing <laughs> in Roman society, too. You know, yeah. it does go back there. Yep. A lot of thoughts here. OK, let's move on. <laughs> All right. A lot of the remaining members of the Davidian church went along with her teachings and dug in waiting. Okay, let's see. Judgment Day is right around the corner. 1959. April 22nd is the day. The day came and went and nothing happened. So obviously from there, they were like, well, obviously she doesn't know what she's talking about. (laughs) <laughs> and they started looking at Dave, Benjamin Roden. A little bit about Benjamin Roden's history. Benjamin Roden was born on January 5th, 1902 in Bearden, Oklahoma, to a family of Jewish origin. His parents, James Buchanan Roden and Hattie Roden, uh, had five other children. Not a lot is known about his early life, but he grew up on a farm in Bearden and attended high school there before going to a teacher's college and then practicing as a teacher for a brief period. After that, he spent some time working on oil fields, first in Oklahoma and then in Odessa, Texas. He married Lois Scott on February 12th, 1937. With her, he had two daughters and four sons, including George Roden, which we will have some chats about him later details about Rodin's early religious views are a bit sketchy but it says that he joined the christian church in the same year that he was married don't know kenneth newport who's a professor of christian thought definitely would like to have a conversation with that dude i'd like to know his thoughts on there being different gods in the bible um He notes that, like many other converted Jews, Ben Rodin carried with him into Christianity a good deal of his Jewishness, which makes sense. I feel like anyone Mm -hmm. carries a bit of their history into whatever new religion they decide that they're going to take on. And the reason that he says this is because, I mean, even if you look at the Seventh-day Adventists, they were very... Similar to Jewish, they're like a mix of Jewish and evangelical, Judaism, sorry, and evangelical. So I'm not really surprised um, that it attracted him and that he was like, wow, this is cool. And like I said, what he loved about it was that they were practicing aspects of Judaism, like Sabbath on the seventh day, holding to a lot of the dietary laws of the Old Testament, And also the couple was given a book called Bible Readings for the Home Circle as a wedding present by Lois's mother. And it's a publication of the Seventh-day Adventist. So it might have been that Lois's family was already very much into the Seventh-day Adventist idea. And that kind of pulled uh, Benjamin in in that way. Mm Mm-hmm. So they later moved from the church in Kilgore to that in Odessa, where Ben became head elder. Around that time, this is early to mid-1940s, they became influenced 
by the Shepherd's Rod Movement. It was a splinter from the Seventh-day Adventists. I feel like there's so many splinters in this story. (laughs) And probably visited its base at the Mount Carmel Center near Waco, Texas. So that is where it moves, where his journey to the Seventh, to the the, the Davidian Seventh-day Adventists happened. They were excommunicated from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, obviously. Uh, they were mad about that. It was because they had helped to finance the church building that was happening at Mount Carmel Center, which I'm like, man, these Seventh-day Adventists are salty as fuck. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They don't give a fuck. Oh, you went to his class? Excommunicated. Oh, you helped (laughs) fund a church? Excommunicated. (laughs) Jeez. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Apparently, there was a standoff between Lois and the church, and she occupied the church for several days, because that's how pissed she was. <laughs> so, here is where we are. Florence has began interpreting the scriptures. She's trying to stop the exodus, which a lot of people are leaving Mount Carmel and starting to be drawn to Benjamin. She's trying to stop all of it. Uh, in 1958, he takes a group of people from Mount Carmel to Israel and sets them up in a village called Amiram in the northern part of the country. He and his wife, Lois, were in the process of negotiating with the Israeli government for places of settlement where Christians could come and live and work towards the establishment of this kingdom, as outlined in the scriptures. And in 1959, he returned to the U.S. with the invitation to the Davidians to begin moving to Israel. They refused, and they were hoping that Florence's, you know, prophecy would come true. Mm -hmm. During this time, there are about 900 to 1,000 Davidians, Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, who are living in Waco, Texas, in this community to give you an idea of what it kind of looked like it was like cabins a lot of cabins it did not look like what um the compound looked like in later years what you might see from like videos and pictures it was very different um the branch davidians under david koresh which we'll talk about later like broke down a lot of those buildings to make the compound. So it looked very different, Um, but it was 941 acres. And when the apocalypse did not happen, she dissolved the, this is, we're talking about uh, Florence after her failure or her, what did the guy, what did they call it? The great disappointment after her great disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) The General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists was dissolved, and they sold all but 77 acres of the property. Wow. And then they split the possessions uh, between, or the General Association, Mm -hmm. Benjamin, Lois, and their son were the ones who got Mount Carmel, like, the 77 acres that were left, that's what they got. Uh, They bought it from them. 
And a lot of people were upset about the uh, Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, like, selling everything. Because a lot of people had made that their home. And mm-hmm. so they were kind of stuck, like, okay, do we just go back out into the real world? Or do we continue with Benjamin Roden? We kind of like him. What else? What's going to happen? That was in 1973. Five years later, Benjamin Roden dies. It's like everybody's fucking dying left and right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> left and right. Left and right. So Benjamin Roden dies. And he's only in his 70s at that point, which I feel like is young, but maybe not for the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, he was born in the early 1900s. So it was our great, great grandmother. And she lived up until what 1998 1997 99 yeah something like that so i don't know lois Roden took over benjamin had always asserted that women just like men were made in the image and likeness of god and thereby could hold a position of co-dominion with men in all things i like that Mm -hmm. lois believed that the holy spirit was a female entity now and that I would agree with. Yes. <laughs> and in 1977, right before Benjamin died, Lois said that she had received a vision of the Holy Spirit, describing it as a silver angel shimmering in the night. Uh, it had a feminine presence. And she said she'd been studying Revelation 18. And it said that the mighty angel was to come down to earth. And that was her understanding. So this... You know, they were like very much into like, you have to be divinely inspired in order to be the leader. This kind of helped her uh, to take over at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and the year leading up to her, her husband's death, and I feel like he might have been getting sick. And that's why there was a lot of her being involved because mm-hmm. um, she was co-president of the Branch Davidians um, during that year. And when he died, they were really close partners. I mean, that like, would have been great, too. The same kind of crazy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, uh, yeah you'll see. She's a bit crazy. <laughs> Not too crazy, but she's definitely crazy. Um, yeah. Okay. So, early... So, he died, and that made her the lawful president until her death in 1986. Early into her presidency, her leadership was challenged by her son, George Roden. Dick. <laughs> Dude, like, listen. Getting listen, dirty. Getting and you'll see. He is not not the best. Um, and in order to kind of help her stance, she united in a <laughs> sorry. In a romantic relationship with Vernon Howell. Later known as David Koresh. What? He was in his late 20s and Lois Roden was in her late 60s. What? Yeah. Bro. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I'm fine. I just had to digest that. Both consenting adults, but still. Yeah, that's a that's a large gap. Yeah, she was forty when he was born. Let's just oh, don't say it like that. Put it in those (laughs) kinds of terms. (laughs) No, don't put it in those terms. (laughs) Yeah, 
<laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. But no judgment, you know. So the reason... so. <laughs> Crash was, and we'll talk about him next week. And we'll talk about him in next week's episode and a bit of his history and what kind of led him to the Davidians and then how that went. But he believed and claimed that God had chosen him to father a child with Lois, and that child would be the chosen one. Well, good for her. She's, I mean, I'm sorry for her that she's still bleeding, in fact. No, she her, was she's not. Still able if she feels so important. She wasn't. No. <laughs> she was post menopause, and he was like, "If I can get this chick pregnant, obviously, God has chosen me to do so, and our child is the chosen one because it's a miraculous conception, just like Abraham and Sarah in the Bible." And Elizabeth, John the Baptist. Yep. So obviously, but his, his excuse, not excuse, but his reasoning when people would question their affair was, it's just like in the Bible, God has chosen me to father a child with her. At least her husband was. Do you think that God had blessed him or like his parts or like the sauce? Or what? So, <laughs> what was blessed? I think that he just wanted to take over <laughs> at this point. And so he's thinking, how can I get in with the higher ups? Obviously, George Roden hates everyone and is just like, fuck everybody. But if mm-hmm. I can get his mom, if I can get in bed with her... <laughs> then at least that's a starting point. Well, the son was a no. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if he went for George first. And then he was like, oh shit, that's a, that's a no go. It's a hard no. (laughs) (laughs) Crowd. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah. He's an opportunist. He He really is. And we'll see that later in his sexual exploits with, um, Young, young women. Very. Legally, legally acceptable in Texas at the time. But. (laughs) Enough to make me barf. I can hear it in your voice. Enough to make both of us very unhappy. (laughs) We'll talk about that next week. So uh, be sure to tune in to next week's episode, guys. (laughs) Where we talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. In 1979, of course, they're publishing publishing tracks. They're publishing all these great things. And Lois begins publishing a magazine entitled Shakina. And the magazine explored the issues of the feminine aspects of the Godhead and women in the ministry of church. Nice. Uh, Shakina magazine contained Lois's commentaries as well as reprints of news articles and excerpts of publications from a variety of Christian, Jewish, and other sources, which addressed women's places in the world of religion. Which, if anyone has a copy of this, can you please send us one? Yeah, I would love like a scan of it. Even yeah, I kind of want to like dive into it and like see what yeah. she wrote about because I'm fascinated. She sounds like a badass woman, and like the fact that she was getting it at sixty. I mean, whatever. 
but maybe right? someone more your age. <laughs> Next time. Next time. Um, so she received <laughs> minor awards and commendations for the magazine from religious groups and individuals. Among them was an award for ec- a, an award of excellence from Excellence in Media Angel Awards, and another from the Dove Foundation, which we know about the Dove Foundation. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they make those really, really, really shitty Christian movies. Members of the Branch Davidians were torn between allegiance of Benjamin's wife, Lois, and his son, George. Tensions are starting to get really high, and Lois dies. (sighs) After Lois's death, George Roden, her son, assumes the right to the presidency. That's where we're going to pick up next week. Uh, We're going to talk about the very quick fall of George Roden and the rise of David Koresh. How could you? I'm so excited. Were you in a cult? Do you have a favorite cult? Is there a cult you want us to cover? Do you just want to tell us a creepy, crazy story you have? Send us your stories at twosisterscult at gmail.com. And we have a Patreon. Um, If you just want to support the show, that would be fantastic. Uh, We are working on getting you guys some content available in the Patreon. Their show is ad-free in the Patreon, as well as some other perks and shout-outs on the show and things like that. And we'll have more information on that. But if you just want to check it out, you can go to twosisterscult.com and click on Patreon at the top menu. We also have some pretty sweet merch available in our shop right now. You can pick from um, different decal stickers, t-shirts. Um, so click shop in the menu at two sisters The best way for you to help us out on the show is to like review and subscribe on Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Podchaser, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, also be sure to tell a friend or five. If you have five friends, that's pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> to tell, you must uh, be awesome. right? Awesome songs. <laughs> Tell a friend who you think would like us. We always love referrals, and that's how we can grow the show. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Two Sisters Cult. So come hang out with us. Catch you on the flip side. And don't join that cult. Yeah, no. Mm-mm. Just don't.